We should try to maximize the amount of energy. And ultimately, we should continue to use better and more concentrated forms of energy, ultimately. And that means things like natural gas and nuclear power. And so that's my ultimate message is more energy and better energy. My guest today is Brian Gitt. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat today and talk a little bit more about one of my favorite topics, which is energy and climate and all these surrounding environmental issues. I I guess I would describe myself as an energy entrepreneur. I, I love starting companies and organizations related to energy environmental topics. And so that's kind of what I've been doing the last 25 years on a range of different technologies. Right now, I work on small modular nuclear technology and how to commercialize that. Before that, I, I worked on wireless power and industrial asset applications. So, for example, how do you send power through the air without cabling or batteries um, to basically power cameras and sensors and electronic devices, things of that nature? I worked as in consulting, commercializing technologies and lighting and alternative fuel vehicles and carbon sequestration of power plants, all kinds of different technologies over the years. So I think the common thread is energy. And I, I like starting new things. So that that's, that'd be a good way to sum it up. Okay. And as I was uh, researching this podcast, I saw that you have a video that has 1.7 million views on PragerU, uh, Confessions of an Environmentalist. <laughs> you know, I didn't even know it had that many views until I saw your your post about it. Um, so that I guess that's a good sign that the word's getting out. That's a great sign. Yeah, I'm impressed. Okay. Uh, do you have a presentation you'd like to give here? Sure. All right. So I, I think in terms of a little bit of background and overview on kind of how I see the world and looking through the energy lens, I think it's it's useful to always ground it in real life examples. And maybe I'd start with a short story about this young woman, Grace. And so Grace, it lives in Uganda, close to Lake Victoria. She's 18 years old. And Imagine just waking, imagine her life in, in terms of the, the daily activities that she has to endure. So she wakes up at 4 a.m. every morning and has to trek about an hour just to get water to be able to cook breakfast and brush her teeth and all that normal stuff. And she's in the dark walking, carrying this 40-pound uh, container of water on her head uh, as she comes back. And that's, imagine that's how you're starting every day. Now, when... Grace and her family, you know, they don't have lighting, they don't have heating, they don't have a toilet. So just picture this. I mean, you're if you don't have a toilet, you're basically defecating outside. Um, you're dealing with all of the smell and disease that are associated with, you know, that kind of reality. You don't wake up and have your nice heated, comfortable room. You're shivering a little bit, and that is early morning. You're cooking over a fire and breathing in wood smoke that is equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And that's why a lot of the kids and women like Grace have all kinds of respiratory ailments and issues. Um, you live in a single room hut made of wood, straw, and sticks, right? This is how a huge percentage of the world lives. About 47% of the world lives in energy poverty. Now, Grace's example is an extreme example. There's about 700 million people living like Grace, right? And that is an incredible amount of people. I mean, if most of us woke up all of a sudden and were living like Grace and a lot of the people that um, are in that circumstance, 
that would be the apocalypse. We talk a lot about all the climate alarmism and the apocalypse is coming if we don't reduce our emissions. Well, we have people living in apocalypse conditions today. You know, 47% of the world is living in energy poverty of some type, shape, or form, which is quite substantial. I mean, when you really start zooming out and taking that um, that perspective, number one, it makes me feel very grateful for <laughs> having all of these amenities that, that I have. But it also makes me angry because I, I feel like a lot of the solutions that are being proposed um, are not addressing nearly half of the population of the planet. And I think when we're talking about solutions, one thing is really clear to me that more energy and better energy is really the path forward. Um, that's how both we help people and protect the environment. And I, I'll talk a bit about some of the myths that underlie a lot of these topics. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is leaders in the developed world, which is ironic, you know, the wealthiest people in Europe, the United States, Canada, all of these developed countries are leading us in the wrong direction. They're telling us that wind and solar are the best way to power society. And they're absolutely wrong about this approach and it has real world consequences on not only our lives in the developed world but certainly in the developing world and i think a lot of these leaders are misguided uh not because they have bad intentions i mean of course there's probably some on the fringe that have bad intentions um, but i think most of them actually do have good intentions they do want to have reliable affordable clean energy but they're just incredibly misguided and ignorant about which are the best sources to do that. And I can relate to this. I actually worked for 20 years promoting renewable energy and energy efficiency. So I'm not I'm not here casting judgment and blame and saying these are bad people. I used to be one of those people. So I understand um, the motivations and um, how they view the world. But just because you feel like you're doing the right thing ultimately doesn't mean you are. And you, we really need uh, better solutions to overcome a lot of these challenges. So there's really a few foundational myths that I think are leading us in the wrong direction, leading a lot of these leaders in this direction. The core myth that I also believed um, is it's kind of a foundation of my ideology in the past is what I call the damage assumption. And this is, I think, at the root of the errors that many of these leaders think. And this is it. It's the amount of energy that people consume is directly proportional to the environmental damage that they cause. That is, I think, a foundational belief that a lot of our leaders have. And this is absolutely false. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some examples in a minute of why that's false. But it's obvious that different energy sources have different levels of impact, obviously, on people and the environment. And ultimately, um, people in poor countries create the most pollution. And people in modern, more developed countries that are embracing technology create less pollution. And we'll, I'll go in a little bit more detail on that. But in addition to this root myth of the damage assumption, there's really these four, right, in terms of the myth versus reality. You know, the first myth is that fossil fuels are being phased out. Um, the reality is we're going to need fossil fuels uh, for all the for certainly the foreseeable future and and likely um, for certainly in my lifetime because we're going to need it for transportation, agricultural industry. It's it's really the foundational element of modern civilization. Um, the second myth is that 
wind, solar, and electric vehicles are the only things that can save the planet. This is the mantra of a lot of the folks um, on the left side of the spectrum, as well as progressives that are basically saying that this is going to save us and that nuclear in reality, though, nuclear and natural gas are the best solutions to achieve the desired aims. Um, the third myth is that nuclear power isn't safe. Uh, when, in fact, nuclear power is just as safe as solar and wind, and really the safest form of 24-7 reliable energy. And then the last one, which is related to the damage assumption I highlighted earlier, is that using more energy damages the environment. This is completely false, because we know that the more energy we use in terms of in, especially embracing new technologies, that we actually protect the environment. So these are the foundational myths that I think are leading our are guiding our leaders in the wrong direction. So here, just to put a little more color on this and explain this little in detail. So this claim, this myth about that we're going to get rid of fossil fuels. Well, eighty-two percent of the world of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels today. Now, over the last twenty years, that has gone from eighty-seven percent to about eighty-two percent. So we've we barely moved the needle. And over that time, although wind and solar have grown, fossil fuels have grown three times faster than wind and solar over the last 20 years. So there's this myth that somehow wind and solar are overtaking fossil fuels and we're going to be um, ultimately getting rid of them when that's clearly not the case if you just look at the data. And the reality is that the world will consume more fossil fuels in 2050 than today. When we look at the growth of developing nation, especially in Asia. And, you know, this is this graph here in this, um, for those watching the video, this is, I think, such a telling story about when we, when we look back all the way, you know, certainly back in 1965, but even well before that, we just see a constant addition as we add more energy sources, we're just layering and consuming more and more energy, which obviously is a great thing for, for society, because it improves our quality of life, our health and well-being, as well as protecting our environment. But as you can see, we're not rapidly transitioning away from fossil fuels. The The second thing I wanted to kind of highlight here is that solar, wind, and batteries aren't better for the environment. And, and this is a complete fallacy. When we think about environmental harm and environmental impact, the most important metric is materials use. How many materials does it take to make and to operate and to dispose of that particular technology. So more materials equals more harm. Um, and when you look at solar, wind, and batteries, they clearly use a lot more materials than nuclear and natural gas. Uh, therefore, when you really want to stack rank these things and evaluate the environmental impact of a technology, it's clear that nuclear and natural gas are superior to solar and wind and batteries. And here, here's just kind of a illustration of this in terms of material requirements uh, per ton per terawatt hour, um, you can see that solar requires the most materials per per unit of energy. Um, and wind requires, you know, we're talking about 18 times more materials that solar requires than, let's say, natural gas and 14 times more from a wind to comparison of nuclear. So it's a lot more materials and you got to think about this it's it's all the way back in the very beginning of the supply chain you got to mine those materials so all the diesel fuel that goes into all of the the trucks and the equipment that processes all of those minerals 
you got to ship all that stuff. You got to make it, you got to then install it and you got to dispose of it. So when you look at that entire life cycle in materials use, it ripples throughout the supply chain. And in addition to materials use, this impacts actually how much land you use. And we know that the less land you use, the more habitats you can protect. Um, and wind and solar power have huge land requirements. Uh, when we stack rank and look at various technologies, whether it be small modular nuclear plants, large nuclear plants, natural gas plants, solar, offshore wind, onshore wind, it's clear that wind power is, is the most in land intensive and solar is a close second. Um, it just, you're talking about, for example, a nuclear plant per, consumes 75 times less land than a solar plant and 360 times less than a wind farm. So you're talking about huge amounts of land that get consumed with these technologies in addition to all of the materials that they encompass. Now, when we talk about CO2 emissions, uh, obviously there's a lot of different perspectives of whether CO2 is this horrible life-ending thing or not. Um, but regardless of those arguments and debates, um, the fact is that the world is focused on CO2 emissions from a policy perspective. And if your goal was truly to reduce CO2 emissions, then you would employ things like transitioning from coal to natural gas. Because in the United States, for example, 61% of all of our emissions reductions have come from transitioning from coal to gas, whereas solar, it's only 8%. And so if you just want to be pragmatic about this, if that truly is the main overarching goal, then you should be employing technologies like natural gas and nuclear power. And when you actually look at the profile of solar plants from a CO2 lens, the traditional life cycle CO2 impacts of solar is that it uses it emits four times more than a nuclear power plant on average. But what we know is that all of these solar panels are made in China, right? They're not made in Europe, are very few of them. There are very few made in the United States. And in China, where 75% of the panels are made, that actually emits 25 times more life cycle CO2 emissions than a nuclear power plant. And so I, this is, I think, an interesting case where no matter where the, a person stands on the debate around CO2 and climate change, if you just want to reduce CO2 emissions, clearly solar and wind are not the most effective ways to do that. And then we get into this other myth about nuclear being unsafe and dangerous when we know, we just look at the data, when you look at a death rate of per unit electricity produced, that nuclear power is only second to solar, and it's it's basically equivalent to solar and wind. Um, it's the safest way to generate 24-7 reliable energy by far. Um, so it's really a false argument to to claim that nuclear power is dangerous when the data just does not support that. And then I think this gets into the, the last myth um, that is what I started with, which is the damage assumption, which is that this idea that the more energy we consume, the more environmental harm we do, when exactly the opposite is the case. Poor countries that don't have a lot of access to energy, they pollute more. And that's why you go to all of these developing countries, they have the highest rate of endangered species and threatened wildlife across the board. And a big reason for that is, is an example is you got to cut down all the forests to leverage and use all that wood to heat and to cook with. And this is something that has huge negative impacts on forest ecosystems, 
soil quality, water quality, all of those different things. Because when you cut down the forest, you don't have basically the soil is being is just getting blown away and eroded and it runs into the rivers and just has this negative cascading effect. So when we here's an example of this. So it, let's just look at Haiti versus the Dominican Republic. So this is the border. This is an image for those of you that aren't on video, there's this um, image of the border between these two countries. And one side you have lush green forest and the other side you have basically area that has been all the forest cut down and clear cut. And when you look at this, I think this is a great illustration of what these kind of energy policies entail because Haiti used to be 60% covered by forests and now less than 1% of it is covered. And that's because they're chopping down all the trees to basically heat their homes and to cook with it. And they're making wood charcoal basically out of all these trees. Where on the Dominican Republic side, they're mostly using fossil fuels, you know, various types of uh, liquefied petroleum gas, natural gas, and in uh, other fossil fuels to cook with. So they're not cutting down all their trees. So this is a, a clear example of why using fossil fuels can actually protect and benefit the environment overall. So when you just step back and look at these, these four myths again, fossil fuels are being phased out, solar and wind are the only things that can save the planet, nuclear power isn't safe, using more energy damaging environment, all of these myths are false. Right. And so that leaves us with, well, what do we do about it? Right. If, if these myths are false, how do we put forward a energy policy and technology solutions that are actually going to be better? And I think ultimately there's no perfect silver bullet here. All energy sources have trade-offs. There's never, there's uh, only trade-offs, not solutions. And, but some are clearly better than others as you consider these different options. And we really need to weigh and evaluate all the costs and benefits. And it really falls into three key areas. You have human factors, environmental factors, and then local feasibility. And what I mean by that is you can't necessarily, if, if there isn't a good, um, for example, water resource, you're not going to have good so, uh, hydropower, right? <laughs> if you don't have a river to dam. So not all, all places have local feasibility. You're, you're not going to build a nuclear power plant in a country that doesn't have a certain level of economic development because they can't afford that upfront capital investment. So we have to weigh the trade-offs of all of these things. And when we look at the human environmental factors, you know, things like human criteria would be things like security, reliability, affordability, pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, versatility, scalability. Those are just examples of criteria that we should be evaluating and weighing the trade-offs against each other. And then on the environmental side, I, we talked about materials use and land use, but there's also pollution and waste and all of these things need to be considered. And when you're looking locally, which all energy technologies ultimately have to be viewed through a local lens, because, for example, in China, they have a lot of coal. They don't have a lot of oil and gas. The United States is very rich in natural gas and oil. We've become now the world's largest uh, producer of oil and gas. Um, some countries are really blessed with a lot of water resources or geothermal energy, like in Iceland. So each local area has different local amenities and benefits that can be leveraged. And so we have to think about that really critically. You can't just apply one solution anywhere in the world all at the same time. And so I think when we consider all these things, um, you know, there's a whole list of things that I would recommend in terms of a better energy strategy and how do we move forward. I think first and foremost, 
we should accelerate the transition away from coal, uh, not necessarily for CO2 reasons, just for air quality reasons, right? You know, no one wants to breathe dirty air. I don't care where you go in the world. I guarantee you ask anyone, they don't want to be breathing particulates and having all kinds of respiratory ailments. They want to breathe clean air. And a, a clear way to do that is to transition from coal to natural gas and or to nuclear power, which are much cleaner burning. Natural gas only has 10% of the air particulates as coal and 50% of the CO2 emissions is coal. And nuclear has zero, no emissions and no particulates at all. Um, we should be helping to finance power plants, transmission lines, and pipelines in the developing world. I think one of the most mind-boggling hypocrisies we could possibly do is to cut off financing of this critical infrastructure in places like Sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America, where they need this critical infrastructure, but we say, no, no, no you, we, don't want to we don't want to basically finance this stuff unless it's wind and solar. All right, we're going to give you guys lower quality intermittent power Meanwhile, we're leveraging all of these fossil fuels and nuclear power to power our civilizations and societies. So it's just completely um, backwards. Uh, we need to reform regulations. We need to support rapid deployment of nuclear power plants. Unfortunately, we've made it so difficult and so hard to build nuclear power today, that, and we got to reverse that. And we got to get rid of all these finance restrictions on oil, gas, and coal. Ultimately, we have to let the market compete in to finance these projects. We should build hydro and geothermal wherever we can, but not every place has those resources available. And we got to get rid of all of these subsidies that are basic for wind and solar power that are acting as this parasitic element on the economics of thermal power plants. It's, it's really harming. You're seeing this in Texas and certainly in California where you're having to force all these power plants to operate uneconomically. It, totally stifles any new investment in new plants. Um, and then ultimately, we need to build pipelines. The East Coast is seeing this now. You have you know, the Northeast and New England, et cetera. They can't get access to kind of cheap natural gas and LNG and all these things when they're right next to one of the largest reservoirs of natural gas in the world. It's crazy because they don't have the pipeline infrastructure to, to move the energy from one place to another. And we certainly need to continue to upgrade our, and expand our refinery capacity. You know, petrochemicals are going to be growing immensely over the next 10, 20, 30 years. They're not going away unless we're going to do without computers and clothing and all kinds of building products and all of these things. So anyways, I just wanted to kind of frame up how I view the, the energy world a little bit and some of the myths versus realities that are out there. And, you know, I, I wrote a book about this topic because I got so frustrated um, and kind of how I could condense down into a really almost a one-hour read time, a lot of the key insights and lessons learned that I've experienced over the last 20-plus years of working in the energy industry. And, and so that really was the motivation to uh, to write about it. So I know I've been doing a lot of talking, and I'll stop talking, and <laughs> let's let's chat about some of these things. Okay, great stuff. Uh, I was just uh, reading out of uh, my copy of the book here. I think it's very interesting, your story. Uh, you said, uh, quote, I, you see yourself as a hero in a, in a cosmic struggle and create a sense that you're fixing the world in a meaningful way. When I was young and impressionable, these ideas gave me a sense of purpose and identity. Um, it made me feel like I was one of the good guys. Um, can you talk about uh, your transformation from a feeling like you were one of the good guys to having questions about what you were doing? Sure. 
I think, you know, all of us uh, are seeking some kind of meaning and purpose in our lives. And we all go about it in different ways. But, but I think it's it, it's inherent to being a human being is that we want to feel like our life matters and we have a sense of purpose. And for me, I gravitated to a lot of the in, in ideologies in the environmental field because it gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me a sense of that I was doing the right thing. I mean, I didn't grow up in a very strong religious background. So I think that was a void that I had growing up and I was seeking a set of uh, values and principles that I could apply in my life and do good in the world and contribute to something bigger than myself. And environmentalism gave me a pathway to do that, right? It gave me a sense that I could contribute and help save something. Uh, and so that's the root of, I think, a lot of those ideas and the, the romantic attraction of it. It's very romantic. We want to contribute to something bigger than ourselves and environmentalism provides kind of an off-the-shelf solution for that. And so that's what attracted me to it originally. And it took me many years to realize that although the intentions were good, that my path to actually achieving it was not correct. And a lot of my beliefs were false. Okay. And in your book, you say it happened little by little, because I'm very interested in how you made the transition exactly and how we can help other people like you. I think there's tons of people who are like you or maybe 10 years ago, they think they're doing the right thing, but uh, how can we uh, help them uh, see the light? Yeah, well, in my particular case, it was through my, I worked in the energy industry. And so I was seeing firsthand that a lot of the programs and policies that I was supporting just weren't working, right? So for example, during uh, the 2008 recession, when the Obama administration came in and in 2009, they were basically flooding the, the market with billions of dollars in and funds to get people back to work specifically in the energy sector. And so the the idea was, well, maybe we should do these energy retrofits of all of these homes, make all the homes and buildings more energy efficient. We'll put people back to work doing all the weatherization and upgrades to heating, air conditioning systems, insulation, putting new roofs on, better windows, all that kind of stuff, right? And my company won a bunch of contracts to help implement that work in California, kind of in the belly of the beast. This is a central, uh, what I would call ground zero for a lot of the these environmental ideas and ethos in the energy side. And what I saw firsthand was with all the best intentions, we would just were not delivering the results that we had promised, right? I mean, the reality was is that a lot of wealthy homeowners would take advantage of these of the financing incentives and rebates because they were doing these projects anyway. If you're if your heater blew out or you need a new air conditioner or you wanted to replace your windows, then you would take advantage of all of these all of the government subsidies. Um, why not? You should, right? But the people that ultimately really could benefit from this and you know cut their energy costs couldn't afford a lot of these upgrades, even with the very generous subsidies, because a lot of times. Whole house retrofits cost between ten, twenty thousand dollars. I mean, most people don't have that kind of money sitting around or can't afford the payments on the financing for that. So what I found was this mismatch between the aspirations of the programs and the actual results. And I always thought it was just we just needed enough money. We just need enough political will. We just needed the utilities and the government agencies and everyone to get behind this. Well, we had all that. We had all of it. We had all of those stakeholders aligned. 
and we could not scale these programs. And I think there's some fundamental flawed assumptions in how these programs were designed. But I think that was one of the examples of the cracks in my beliefs when I started to really see more clearly that all I thought was just a money problem. And clearly that was not the case. So I could see politicians being far enough away from the problem that they're believing uh, people below them that say these programs are working. But do you think people uh, like you can work for uh, for years helping to try to retrofit houses? Do you think they can still maintain the sense that uh, this is working and it makes financial sense? Or do you think most people uh, going through what you went through, they'll figure it out? Well, I don't think uh, people are going to have the opportunity to go through what I went through because I was working in it professionally day in and day out. And obviously, most people are have all different kinds of profession and lives, and they don't. <laughs> hopefully, they don't suffer that kind of that kind of direct pain and experience. I mean, some people are going to have the experience where they're going to go get a solar contractor to come out and and kind of build a business case for their home and how much is it going to cost? And in most areas of the country, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah, it makes sense in a few climates. If you're in parts of California and you have a large home and there's a bunch of rebates and subsidies, yeah, solar can make sense. Unfortunately, you're socializing a lot of that cost of maintaining the grid onto lower modern income people. So you're you're really not paying your fair share of what it takes to upkeep the grid, but it could make sense financially. But those are isolated cases. In most of the country, it just doesn't pencil. And so I think there's one experience that people will have where, oh, this sounds interesting. It sounds like a good idea. Maybe I should get a quote to put a solar system on my house. But ultimately, that is going to be a very, very, very small percentage of the population that's going to even have that direct experience. So I think where we're going off the rails here is that a lot of our politicians and uh, corporate leaders are basically leveraging people's empathy. They're leveraging this, this desire to do good in the world and this desire to contribute to something bigger than themselves. And they're selling this false ideal around environmentalism. And I think we need to violently fight back against this in terms of we need to push back because this is having great harm to the people that can least afford it. And ultimately, the people that pay for these misguided policies are lower and moderate income people, whether you're in the developed country like United States, or certainly as the example of Grace and Uganda that I gave in the beginning. Um, ultimately, it's the same across the board. People that are in the lower socioeconomic end of the spectrum are going to pay the highest price. And so we cannot afford to do that just to virtue signal and feel good about ourselves. Um, it is totally immoral and inappropriate for us to do that. We have to fight back against that narrative. I totally agree with that. Uh, do you think a lot of people maybe in California are delusional enough to think that if they put a few solar panels on their roof and they plug their Tesla in at home, that their Tesla is powered by those panels? I see people on Twitter that are uh, claiming that, hey, my, my Tesla is sun powered because I'm doing that. People believe that? <laughs> I think that most people are busy with their normal lives and they're they're raising their families, they're going to work, they're, you know, involved in their their sports or other activities. They don't have the time to really invest in understanding something as complex as the energy system, which it is complex. I mean, it's it's not a, it's not simple and you and I we obviously spend a lot of time thinking about this and reading and studying these things, but your average person doesn't, and it's a very superficial level of understanding of how a grid works. And I understand why someone think, oh, I bought, I have solar panels on my house, I have electric vehicle, you know, this is solar powered. When meanwhile, 
all of the the parts and components are all derived from fossil fuels, all ultimately in the raw materials. And even the grid itself is being propped up by fossil fuels because you can't run a grid on solar and wind. There's not a single example in the entire world of any grid running on 100% solar and wind. The countries that have high levels of renewable penetration, you know, when you look at places like Costa Rica or Iceland or some of these examples, it's because they're relying on hydropower and, and or geothermal. It's not coming from solar and wind. Um, there's not a single grid in the world that is solely powered by solar and wind, nor will there be anytime soon, if ever, because we haven't solved long duration energy storage. Um, our batteries, our best batteries, you're talking about are designed for four hours or maybe six hours. So let's even say the the new new braking technology will be eight hours. Well, that's still not nearly enough when you have to shoulder seasonal load differences of weeks at a time with scarce wind and sun. In, in Germany, for example, which is crazy because they have such an overemphasis on, on solar and wind in their energy policy, you know, they have weeks where they have wind droughts and solar droughts because of obviously the winter and short days and there's a lot of clouds and you know they they're basically the amount of energy storage you would need to have um is weeks of energy storage which is just not even realistic or feasible or much less cost effective so I see in your book, you mentioned some names that I'm familiar with, uh, Michael Schellenberger, uh, Meredith Angwin, for example, Mark Mills, and I think Robert Bryce, Alex Epstein, a lot of names. Mm -hmm. um, do you think uh, that uh, people uh, like that who understand what's happening with energy, are they having any luck in reaching out to politicians or getting politicians to, to listen or uh, people in power, maybe our energy secretary? Uh, is anybody in power listening to uh, to reality about energy right now? I think we're starting to see a shift. It's not as fast as I think we would hope, but I think we are seeing a shift, specifically on things like nuclear power, where just a few years ago, you had countries that were phased, phasing out and winding down their nuclear power programs. And many of these countries have done 180 degree turns. So Japan, South Korea, um, many of these countries in the Middle East were not overly investing in in nuclear power is going to be their future. And now they've really returned to that. They see the need for energy security and for reducing emissions and that nuclear power is going to be one of the pathways to do that. We still have a ways to go on this negative narrative around fossil fuels. I think fossil fuels are still vilified uh, undeservedly. Um, they, they are the foundation of modern civilization. We should be incredibly grateful to fossil fuels. Now, that doesn't mean that we that fossil fuel com companies have done no harm or that there's no negative externalities. Obviously, there are. But on balance, there's no doubt that fossil fuels have had tremendous benefit um, to human well-being and our environment overall when you look at the costs and benefits of this. So I think... We are in some areas starting to see a shift, like on nuclear power. I think there's a long ways to go on the argument around fossil fuels. But ultimately, this comes down to some of the economic and physical realities. So at the end of the day, people want their, their lighting, they want their heat, they, they want all of their conveniences and appliances. And if for some reason they're not getting access to that energy, if it's intermittent or if they're seeing more power blackouts or if the cost of energy skyrockets, then there will be a public backlash. There's no doubt about it. Politicians 
are our bellwether, really. They'll go wherever the wind blows. And when you have modern developed economies like in California starting to see much more frequent blackouts and you see businesses not being able to operate or moving out of state, um, that's going to have real world implications. There, there will be a political backlash and correction ultimately. So am I correct in thinking that this whole belief in the climate crisis, it's a luxury belief, and as soon as any real world uh, uh, harm comes to anyone because of the uh, ridiculous solutions, then people will forget about the climate crisis and demand reliable energy? That's what I'm seeing. Is that true in California, do you think? I think it will be true anywhere because human nature is the same, right? I mean, when you look at developing countries and they rank, what are the biggest problems that they face? Climate change doesn't even make the top 10 list. It's not even on the list, right? I mean, it's, you know, even if you'll hear some of the politicians talk about it, the the average people that are surveyed, they care about some of the basic necessities, education, healthcare, security, crime. Those, those are the, the concerns of most people. And you see it over and over in all, anytime people are surveyed. In developed countries, as you said, we, we are blessed and you know, that we have a lot of these the ability to have luxury beliefs around some of these things right and so but when it push comes to shove at the end of the day no one wants a refrigerator that spoils their food because it doesn't have power no one wants to not have air conditioning in you know 90 degree heat in the summer uh all of these things i think at the end of the day come down to human wants and needs and energy is at the foundation of all of that so people are not will not stand um based on any false principle when it comes down to it. So well, I've enjoyed hearing you speak elsewhere. I was just listening to you on uh, Marty Ben's podcast. And did I hear correctly that you said that in Japan, they may be bringing up 50 new or restarting 50 nuclear plants that had been closed? That's, is that correct? Yeah, after the Fukushima uh, disaster, or I, I don't even, shouldn't even call it a disaster. I guess there's what what happened in uh, Japan with Fukushima? Obviously, there was um, an earthquake that created a tidal wave that created a disaster for the country, right? Because a lot of buildings and people were basically uh, impacted by that event, and they shut down the nuclear power plant in Fukushima. And there was, unfortunately, um, the diesel generators that were meant to cool the reactor were knocked out right? Because they made a mistake in terms of the elevation. Um, but the impact of that radiation was minimal to nothing. I mean, there was there was no human harm that created or death created. But unfortunately, the country overreacted and they shut down all of their fleet of nuclear reactors um, in Japan. And it's taken all of this time for them to now realize that these are really essential. So now they're turning them all back on. They're they're basically going back through in any any nuclear power plant they can. They're basically um, trying to bring it back online as fast as possible. And so you're seeing a huge ramp up. And they're also exploring potential new development in the future. But the first and foremost priority is turning all those old plants on. So you have dozens of plants that are getting turned back on right now and kind of in the near future um, in Japan. Okay. Uh, do you think uh, some decades in the future, we might see a lot of uh, small modular reactors that are put just where we need the power so we don't have to worry so much about transmission lines trying to move electricity long distances? Well, this is the challenge I work on every day. So I work for a, a small n nuclear company that 
basically sells heat and power for factories and data centers and military bases and various industrial sites. And absolutely, I think we're going to have thousands of units across the world that will de be deployed in these applications um, for the simple fact that it it is so hard and so expensive to build new transmission infrastructure. I mean, I think it's universally people don't like big power lines, right? For a whole variety of reasons. It ruins view sheds. They don't like it running through their property. It triggers all kinds of legal battles. And it's just very difficult to build. It takes over 10 years, oftentimes, in the US to build new power line. Uh, and in addition to that, you have to be able to build the, the other energy generation assets, et cetera, which is very challenging. So I think this model of small modular reactors that will be close in proximity to the load source, so at the factory or at the data center or at the military base, just makes a ton of sense um, because it in improves reliability and resilience of these facilities that need critical power all the time. They have zero emissions. They have a teeny land footprint. They use a few amount of materials. Some of the fuel cycles of these different reactors, they can go 10 years without refueling. There's so many benefits of this technology that I think Nuclear power is inevitable, and we're going to have large plants and small plants and medium-sized plants, but small modular reactors will ultimately, I think, fulfill um, many of these industrial and commercial applications in the near future. Okay. Uh, on a separate note, uh, I think you've talked elsewhere about uh, the issue of subsidies that supposedly uh, hydrocarbon uh, fuel has a uh, has been getting a lot of subsidies, but also I've seen that they, they're calling it a subsidy. If you have a natural gas plant, you're emitting CO2, that CO2 is common, uh, causing damages that you're not paying for. So they're calling that a subsidy because they're not being charged for this fake damage that they're causing. Do you have any insight into that, what I'm talking about there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of misinformation and ignorance when it comes to subsidies and how they're categorized. It's like most things, that's how you define things is critical. And unfortunately, the way people are even defining subsidies for and now there there are a lot of subsidies across the world for fossil fuels, but most of those subsidies are just to decrease the cost to the consumer. It's not actually to the going to the company. Um, it's because it's such a critical resource for people to be able to live their lives. Um, Ultimately, though, when it comes to mapping out how much different industries receive from a subsidy standpoint, by far, renewable energy, wind and solar get the vast majority of the subsidies. Um, and the, the few subsidies that are allocated for things like fossil fuels and nuclear, uh, specifically in fossil fuels, are not necessarily going to the companies. They're going to consumers just to lower the cost. And then a lot of the things that we are called subsidies for fossil fuel companies are actually just typical uh, expense write-offs that other businesses would be able to write off as well. There's nothing specific about kind of the fossil fuel industry. So it all comes down to the definitions ultimately, and there's a lot of ways to manipulate the data to bring forth the narrative that you want to showcase. Okay. And also on a separate note, knowing what you know, do you have ideas on how we might power our airliners maybe 100 years from now? Making maybe making liquid fuel using nuclear power, or what do you think? I think s synthetic fuels and fuels have a lot of potential. Um, ultimately, I mean, right now, there's nothing better than jet fuel. 
And we we have plenty of there's no shortage of fossil fuels, right? When we we've barely started exploring all the potential uh, places fossil fuels exist in the world, you know, for example, in the oceans um, and in other locations that are harder to reach, we've basically picked out the low hanging fruit and we're starting to use up some of those resources. But we we have um, almost an endless supply of, of fossil energy. We the only limit to that is cost and technology innovation. And obviously, we don't want to pay a lot of extra money to go and uh, harvest certain petrochemicals or natural gas or oil from the seafloor if it's a lot more expensive. But ultimately, jet fuel is a good use of fossil fuels in the near term because it's so ridiculously uh, effective and cost from a cost standpoint, from a performance standpoint, et cetera. So I think we should be trying as much as possible to decrease emissions um, in an appropriate and cost-effective way. And But jet fuel seems like a really good use of fossil fuels for the foreseeable future. Ultimately, I think we will have ways to drive down the cost of making synthetic fuels using nuclear power and other kind of low-cost, kind of emissions-free technologies to create those fuels, ultimately. But we're a long ways away from that. I mean, I, I work in the nuclear power industry. Nothing would make me happier than creating lots of synthetic fuels and selling it to uh, to the airlines. But I also care about the affordability, right? And right now, we're not there yet. So yes, the future has a lot of potential to drive down the cost of synthetic fuels to for having liquid fuels, because ultimately, we're not going to use... We're not going to have electric airliners, right? I mean, maybe there'll be short hops and certain applications of electrically driven aircraft, but the the majority of the airline industry is not that, right? It's doing these longer flights, certainly international flights or cross-country flights. They're not going to be, it makes no sense to uh, use an electric uh, drive and battery storage kind of combination to fuel that. Uh, it makes sense to use liquid fuels. And so synth synthetic fuels provide a really good opportunity in the long term. I think I did read that there was some calculation that to try to power a jetliner using a battery, the battery uh, using current technology would have to weigh 3 million pounds, then the plane couldn't take off. That, that... Uh, yeah, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but I can tell you it, it, it's, it makes absolutely no sense to use a battery to power a plane, certainly a large plane with current technology. We would, we would not to say, I mean, humans are incredibly innovative and adaptive, and maybe we will have, and I hope we do, have incredible breakthroughs in battery chemistry and, and new innovations, which I'm sure we will, but there's nothing on the horizon uh, that even would come close to being able to um, supply enough energy storage for commercial jetliners to take hundreds of people um, on any kind of reasonable distance for a flight and do that in a cost competitive manner. There's just nothing that's on the horizon that would do that. Even when we figure that out and have that breakthrough, you're still talking about a decade or more of commercialization time of that technology. So we're, we are very, very long ways away from any kind of electric focused aviation for any mass mass scale. So from your perspective in California, do you think there's anybody that's still clinging to the idea that Moore's law might apply to battery technology or wind power or uh, solar panels? Because it clearly well, you, does not. <laughs> it doesn't, but you see it all the time, even on Twitter. I mean, people have this, they make a category error that they think that somehow, actually it's the opposite of Moore's law because 
Moore's law, basically everything is shrink. The transistors are shrinking and getting smaller and smaller and smaller and taking up less space and less materials because of that innovation. Whereas in renewable energy and batteries, it's just the opposite. We're getting, we're using more materials. I mean, yeah, we're getting slight efficiencies, but ultimately a lot of the solutions are um, requiring more and more materials to deliver the necessary energy for, to meet those demands. So uh, I, I, we're certainly not going in that direction. And that's why we're seeing the cost of solar panels, the cost of wind turbines, the cost of batteries are all going up, right? Because they are incredibly materials heavy in terms of their requirements. And the cost of mining uh, is going up. The cost of energy that goes into the mining and manufacturing of these products is going up. The cost of financing is going up. All these reasons, there's numerous, that not just one, but these technologies are getting more expensive, not less. And they're ultimately, the baseline is they use a lot more materials, which means a lot more energy and ultimately leads to more cost. Okay, I'm just looking here at that. Uh, I'll put the link to your website in the show notes, just BrianGit.com. We can get your book uh, in the dark. It's uh, buy it for nine dollars, or you can just read it online right at the site. It looks like right at, on your website. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I don't make any money on this book. I'm, I'm doing this is from a mission-driven standpoint to spread these ideas, and so you know, I think paper copies are are really useful and important. People like reading physical books, but we designed this to be very small, compact. You can read it in about an hour. You can ship it really cheap. And so, you know, we want to spread the word about the book, obviously, but yeah, I, w I wanted to make it available for free online from electronic version as well. And uh, the other place people can access content besides BrianGit.com is just um, at BrianGit on Twitter, or I guess now X, uh, is I try to per share a lot of content and insights and data um, through my Twitter account. Yeah, so it's an easy 60-minute read. I was just looking at it just before we fired this up here. But wouldn't it be great if uh, politicians, school children everywhere would read this, spend 60 minutes reading it? That would, I bet well, you that was the idea is that most people don't want to spend hours and hours reading a book. And I try to distill down all of the best ideas I could find and all the data. You know, I think there's over 150 references in this in this short book. And, you know, we're we're actually distributing it to lots of elected officials, to uh, corporate leaders, to folks in the um, finance investor investing industry you know we're talking about even sending it to all members of congress so that we have lots of ideas on how to get the word out there and start improving the level of energy education energy literacy and getting rid of a lot of these false ideas yeah i love the idea of uh, keeping it short and sweet instead of uh, giving them a three foot uh, tall stack of papers to read so uh, <laughs> any any other points you'd like to make before we go ahead and wrap this one up well, I just really want to thank you. Appreciate you reaching out. I always love having these kinds of discussions. I appreciate the work you're doing and educating people on these really important energy and environmental topics. And ultimately, my main message to people is more energy and better energy. We need a lot more energy, and that should be the main metric that we we consider when we think about human progress and human well-being is how much energy can we consume? All right. Thank you very much for your work, Brian Gitt. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thank you.